This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, we have two cards again this week. Double card episode. Ron Robinson. So we have Ron Robinson, number 517, pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. And Ron also features on the Cincinnati Reds team leaders card, number 81. Fantastic. Good to clear two out of the queue. Before we get to Ron, we do have a bit of pre-episode follow-up. I don't know if that's possible in the physics of space and time, if that's actually possible. But I do believe we have some pre-episode follow-up. Matt, you stumbled upon something that is 1988 relevant that satisfies the 10% Canadian content quotient that we strive for here at the 1988 Tops podcast. And you said that you stumbled on this video in your research, which I I question what you were researching (laughs) to stumble on. This video that is from the 1988 Crystal Light National Aerobics Championship. Yeah, that's correct. In starting my research for this episode, I like to search for our subjects in YouTube as well as in Wikipedia and Google. And the combination of things in my YouTube algorithm being typically HBO shows from the 1990s and 2000s, chess, fitness, and baseball served up a clip from the National Aerobic Championship USA 1988 on my homepage, I could not help but click it. And it was such gold, David, that I had to share, alert you to this fact. This requires me to apologize to you, Matt, because (laughs) as a friend, I should have already alerted you to this video. This is in the like 10 videos that just circulate around in my brain and never leave. (laughs) There is a frantic theme song that that just goes and it will never leave your brain welcome to the fourth annual crystal light national aerobic championship finals featuring regional finalists from all across the united states competing for the title of america's best aerobic athlete The star of TV's hit comedy series, Growing Pains, an honorary chairperson of the National Fitness Foundation, Alan Thicke. There's just <laughs> giant smiles. The song is about pushing yourself to the maximum. I think it says, we're winners, watch us glimmer. All while people are just very shiny, not wearing a lot of clothes, but having great winning smiles. This song was written by Ty Parr who was also a background actor on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And the song is on Spotify and has nearly 3 million plays. So I don't, I don't know what we're doing wrong, but Ty Parr is, is beating us and plays on Spotify. It's absolutely crushing us. There's a second song in this, the full 45-minute video of this aerobics championship that is hosted by Alan Thicke. Mm. 
And this one challenges Tom Hankey's Aqua Velva ad in terms of pure sensuality. <laughs> Alan Thicke was not only the dad on Growing Pains, but he was also known for writing theme songs. He wrote the Facts of Life theme song. He sang and wrote the Different Strokes theme song. And he co-wrote this song called Sweaty and Hot. And Matt, I don't... This is one of the most disturbing songs I've ever heard. Here's Alan Thicke. To hear Alan Thicke sing, sing the word gluteus, he also rhymes spectacular and cardiovascular. I love you it. Know. I love this song. It's a it's a nice song. Hey, I noticed that you're at the gym looking at these dudes who are really strong, but guess what? I can get you sweaty and hot. I am Alan Thicke. More innuendo in this two minutes than, than Robin Thicke has used in his career. But... <laughs> It is the chorus of this song is great and it will get stuck in your head. Similar to Steely Dan, this started as a joke for me and then I think it became a song that I actually like. Yeah, unironically excellent. We should also note R.I.P. Alan Thicke, who passed away in 2016. Just a true legend in American and Canadian television and music history. How does Sweaty and Hot, how does that rank? as far as the music that we've covered on this. Better than Thad Bosley's music. Maybe it's up there yeah. with Orioles Magic. It would fit right in in the latest album by White Denim that we featured on the Pete and Cavilia episode. I think it's, it's definitely you know hot dance rock track. Sweaty and Hot is the Jay Baller theme song. <laughs> I love it. For our Jay Baller documentary that we end up producing at some point. But now let's go to Ron Robinson, <laughs> the presumptive uh, topic of this episode, although we haven't talked about him yet. And why did we choose Ron today? I was looking through the list of episodes, and we have four teams that we've only done one episode for. And that's the Reds, Orioles, Cardinals, and Astros at this point. So I realized that we've left some of these teams behind, including basically the entire state of Ohio. <laughs> we did uh, we did Ron Kittle's Topps Traded card, but we didn't really talk about Cleveland. The Reds were our very first episode, and then Julio Franco was also in June of 2020. But basically, we spent the last year ignoring the state of Ohio. So apologies to the state of Ohio. So we decided, as Eric Davis was our first card, we need to get back to Cincinnati, get back to the Reds. And I looked at this team leaders card, and Ron Robinson just has a very distinctive look. This is a 
an odd couple picture of Ron Robinson and John Franco. He's a very tall, very curly-haired, red-haired man playing for the Cincinnati Reds, dressed all in red. I like the look, so I decided. And I also knew nothing about Ron Robinson, so I wanted to learn. Yeah, this is an extremely ruddy card, number 81. And also the height difference is really striking. You have this large, large towering, yes, towering and looming over John Franco, like you could imagine it in a in a movie where they're they're actually brothers, but you know, adopted brothers or stepbrothers or something like that. Like, why are these two Cincinnati twins? (laughs) Cincinnati twins. John Franco looks very much like Scott Bayo. In this photo in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties, Ron Robinson kind of looks like Daniel Stern. Mm, yes, from Home Alone. Yeah, so you could definitely see this as a a buddy cop movie where two partners go undercover as Cincinnati Reds. These guys were also spring training roommates, so that maybe explains why they were you know hanging out, goofing around. Okay, so then, so that's number 81. As we flip to the back of the card, though, Ron Robinson's not on this card at all. John Franco is listed as the saves leader with 32, but Ron Robinson isn't even one of the leaders. And this is a team that's got Eric Davis, Dave Parker on it. What the heck is Ron Robinson doing on this card? Ron Robinson was a very good relief pitcher. He was a swingman for this Reds team, so sometimes he would be thrown in to start. He had a very good season in 1986, one of the better relief pitching seasons of the 1980s. So he was a, a quality pitcher and kind of a mainstay in that bullpen. We do see Eric Davis's name show up there a lot. He would have been probably a good choice to put on this team leader's card, as he is part of the impetus of this podcast, and we love him here. But if you look at this pitching staff, not a lot to write home about. You have Tom Browning and Bill Gullickson and Ted Power tied with the lead in wins with 10. Ted Power wasn't even really a starting pitcher. That was the only season that he had over 30 starts. Tom Browning and Bill Gullickson, decent pitchers. These mid-80s Reds teams were often over 500, coached by Pete Rose but they finished in second place for three straight years, so never quite got over the hump to get into the playoffs in the 80s. Look at the front of 517, though, of Ron Robinson's card. I like this card even better. This shows you the full kind of goofy look of Ron Robinson here. He is putting his cap back on his head. He's got the very bright red spring training jersey with the red undershirt as well it's ext- it's just extremely red and the white striped trim and then with white pants and the red and white striped belt area then add to that his bright red hair his bright red face and the red <laughs> on the fans in the background there's a lot of red on this card a lot of red going on looking to the back of the card Ron Robinson 6 foot 4 225 pounds right-handed thrower and batter Drafted in the first round by the Reds in 1980. Born March 24th, 1962 in Exeter, California, and a home in Woodlake, California. Exeter, California is located in the San Joaquin Valley at the foot of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, just outside of Sequoia National Park. And maybe 
the most famous person associated with Exeter is more infamous, <laughs> and that's Joseph James D'Angelo. He was a police officer in Exeter in the 1970s, so around the time that Ron would have been in high school. There were a series of home invasions in the surrounding area, and at the time they were credited to a person called the Visalia Ransacker. Mm. And that criminal was not caught. D'Angelo is fired from his job with the police department, moves on to Sacramento, and there's a series of long unsolved burglaries, rapes, and murders in the Sacramento area, credited to a person who was later called the Golden State Killer. And we don't often get into true crime on this unless it's Lenny Dykstra related, but this <laughs> is a has been a big true crime phenomenon. This Golden State Killer case led to an HBO series and a book written by Michelle McNamara, wife of Patton Oswalt, called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. The case ended up getting reopened because of her work and her independent research into this. And D'Angelo was arrested for these crimes in 2018 and pled guilty to 13 murders. So his crime spree started in Exeter, California before he moved along. Unfortunately, before D'Angelo was arrested, Michelle McNamara passed away in 2016, but her book and her research helped to catch this Golden State Killer who, who started his crime spree in, in Exeter in the Visalia area. So while Ron was born in, in Exeter, right nearby is Woodlake, which is where he was living at the time of this card and where he went to high school. Not a lot of notable alumni from Woodlake High School. They have a school hall of fame. Ron is not in it, mm. which seems like BS to me. Yeah, I would say. Recent inductees include some neurosurgeon, a CEO of Code for America. Those two have zero cards in the 1988 top set. <laughs> Ron has two. That's the true standard of greatness for any, for any high school hall of fame. Joking aside... One name in that Hall of Fame jumped out at me, Leo Robinson. Hmm. So I, I kind of stopped looking at this Hall of Fame once I saw, like, I don't recognize any of these names. There's no, like, uh, football player or, or baseball player that I recognize. There's no president in here. This isn't, we're not talking about the Punahou School. But Leo Robinson started coaching at Woodlake in 1959, both football and baseball. He coached football for 41 years and baseball for 27 years. In 2002, he's inducted into the California Coaches Association Hall of Fame. And later in 2002, he died at age 67. I bring up Leo because at his induction, he said that the biggest thrill of his coaching career was coaching his sons, Ron and Randy, at Woodlake High School. Randy was a minor leaguer in the White Sox organization for a few years, and Ron is the guy on our card. So those guys grew up with Coach Leo Robinson, California coaching legend, as their dad. And both of them ended up as quality pitchers. So as you said, Randy was a minor league for a few years with the White Sox. But Ron ends up as the Reds' first-round draft pick. Yes, in the 1980 draft, Ron is picked with the 19th pick in the draft. $92,500 bonus. The first pick in that draft was Daryl Strawberry. This draft is full of... 1988 tops subjects tim tuffle in the second round randy reddy in the sixth round oil can boyd in the 16th and eric davis was picked in the eighth round of that draft 
And that leads us to this way to the clubhouse on the card where Ron signed as the first round draft selection with the Cincinnati Reds June 14th, 1980 by scout Reno DiBenedetti. Add Reno DiBenedetti to the list of scouts names that we love on this podcast. He was a minor league player for the Pirates and Reds, turned to into a scout in the Visalia area. He passed away at a relatively young age, at age 55 in 1983. So Ron, after being selected first, ends up in the minors and is a starter right away. His first season in 1981 actually leads to the fun fact on the card that Ron ranked second in the Midwest League with three shutouts, 165 strikeouts, and a 2.24 ERA, and third with 169 innings pitched at Cedar Rapids in the 1981 season. That's a big fun fact, David. Yes. He had a very good season at single-A Cedar Rapids. That earns him a call up to double-A, still starting, still pitching decently as a starter. His ERAs were in the mid-threes in 1982 and 83. Earned him a call up to AAA at the end of the 1983 season, starting at AAA Wichita with the Wichita Arrows in 1984. Not his best season in 1984. He was 9-6 and six with an ERA over 4.5 and a whip over 1.5. Despite those not great numbers for Ron at AAA, he still earned a call up in 1984 to the Reds. Yeah, because the Reds 1984 weren't doing so great they needed some help. After 120 games, they fired their manager, Vern Rapp. And that 120th game was August 14th, and that's Ron's first big league appearance. The very next day, the Reds bring in Pete Rose as player manager. August 18th, Ron got his first major league start and had a really weird game. He pitched .1 inning, gave up seven runs, but only one of them was earned. So he took a loss, but this is a. I had to look at this box score to figure out what happened here. Ron gave up a hit, then he had a balk, so the runner goes to second, and then four errors led to seven runs. But Ron was oh only responsible gosh. for that lead runner. He's taken out of the game. The game ends thirteen to eleven. Not a great start to Ron's pitching career, but only one earned run. So if you do look at that first stat line in 1984 he gave up 18 runs but only 12 of them were earned (laughs) so his era was pretty decent 2.72 for the year yeah that's very strange the end to the season though was pretty good his last four games he had starts earning a complete game and his first win 1985 started out the year in triple a denver with the not yet joey Myard zephyrs i guess you'd say and makes his way back to the majors by late may Ron ended up as the swing man for the rest of the 1985 season, starting some games, relieving some others. So in 33 games, he had 12 starts. He also earned a nickname, True Creature, which is a weird nickname. <laughs> that is a weird nickname. And sometimes guys would call him True or TC. He was given this name by Pete Rose, perhaps as payback. So as you said, Matt, Ron was left off the roster coming out of spring training. He was joking around with Pete Rose and said, well, you know, you're going to leave me off the roster. I hope that you don't get the hits that you need for the all-time record. At at that point, Pete was on 4,097 hits. So Ron was, you know, jokingly 
joshing his manager that he you know would be rooting against him. So Ron's called back up, and Pete asks him if he knows Jim Wolford. Jim Wolford played in Montreal. Jim also from Visalia, near Ron's hometown. Jim Wolford was known as Creature. He was also known for the quote, 90% of the game is half mental, which sounds very Yogi Berra-esque. Yes. But Pete told Ron, you're the true creature. So while Jim Wolford was called creature, he called Ron the true creature. And Pete Rose even got Ron a shirt that said true creature. Ron, when asked about it, said, well, some of the guys kid me about being ugly. And he said, I think I'm good looking. Anyway, my wife and son still love me. While it started out as Ron maybe kidding with Pete, then Pete being a bit of a bully and calling Ron a creature. For his part, Ron said, I like the nickname. If the number one player in baseball gives it to me, as long as they keep talking about me, that's good. When they stop, I'm in trouble. So guys maybe bullying Ron about his looks. He was called the true creature, and it it was reported in local news. I don't know that we're going to call him a true creature because it seems mean. What? So I understand a guy named Wolford being called Creature because his last name starts with Wolf. I think that also might have been that Wolford was an odd-looking fellow. But Ron Robinson is just a big, tall, goofy-looking guy. So with his new nickname in tow in 1985, Ron ends up playing in 33 games with 12 starts and was much more effective as a reliever, it looks like. Opponents only hit 215 against Ron in relief appearances, and he had a 2.27 ERA. As a starter, his ERA was up closer to 5, and opponents hit 279. In second and third plate appearances against Ron, batters hit over 300. So the first time facing them, he was pretty good, and then guys got the hang of what Ron was, was doing. So for the Reds overall, over 500, but in second place. 1986, another second-place finish. They end up 10 games behind the Astros, and Ron has another good season in the bullpen. This also leads us to a cool stat from Andy at High Heat Stats, 1988 Tops blog. He said that in 1986, Robinson had one of the best years by an 80s relief pitcher. His 86 season was one of just nine seasons where a reliever appeared in at least 70 games, had an ERA plus of 119 or better, plus had at least one strikeout per inning. The other guys on that list include Mitch Williams, Tom Hankey, and Don Carmen, which that name was a little bit surprising. I forgot Don had that one really good season with the Phillies. Ron was particularly good against right-handed hitters. They only hit 219 against Ron, and he had 84 strikeouts versus 11 walks against righties, compared to lefties who hit 295, and were relatively even in walks and strikeouts. Ron faded a little bit near the end of the season. He had a lot of appearances, a lot of innings for a relief pitcher. He sometimes served in middle relief or working the 7th and 8th while his spring training roommate, John Franco, emerged as a full-time closer. Ron also had 14 saves that season. In 1987, Ron starts out again in the bullpen for the first 30 appearances, And then into June, he became a full-time starter again. He was pretty consistent this time as a starter. Another Pete Rose story from Ron. Ron's in the clubhouse. Pete Rose comes up to him and says, 
I've got some good news and some bad news for you. Ron says, okay, what's the good news? He says, you're starting against Houston. And then Ron says, okay, what's the bad news? And he says, you're going up against Nolan Ryan. (laughs) So Ron's first start that year was against the Astros, but Ron ended up getting a win. He he got a 9-to-1 win over the Nolan Ryan-led Astros. He was pretty good in those starts. He went 6-3 and three with a 3.77 ERA, which is pretty good considering 87 is a big offensive year. But back to that team leaders card, as far as pitching goes, basically Ron and John Franco were, were an okay choice as, as far as pitchers on this 87 team. But really, you know, again, how do you leave Eric Davis off that card? I mean, really, they should have just put Eric Davis's card on there. <laughs> they should just put his stats on there. Just 37 home runs, 50 stolen bases. Exactly. So heading into 1988, Ron is still recovering from offseason elbow injury. He had been expected to be a full-time starter, but only ended up playing in 17 games in 1988. But he did have his most memorable moment as a major leaguer, May 2nd, 1988. On May 2nd, Ron's pitching against the Expos. This is the Expos team with Tim Raines, Tim Wallach, a young Andres Galarraga, matched up against 1988 tops hero Pasquale Perez. And Ron put down 26 batters in a row. He had only struck out three guys, and he was winning three to nothing. But he's got a perfect game going with two outs in the ninth inning. Pasquale Perez was that 27th batter. The Expos bring on Wallace Johnson to pinch hit. Ron takes the count to two and two, one strike away from the first perfect game in Reds history. In this video, the crowd is going nuts. Everybody knows what's happening. Wallace Johnson hits a bloop single to left field. Ron loses the perfect game, loses the no-hitter on what could have been the last pitch of the game. The crowd goes quiet, and then everybody gets up, standing ovation for Ron for the Great performance that he put in while being not quite able to, to seal the deal. The next batter up is Tim Raines, who hits a home run. They pull Ron, put John Franco in, who closes out the game. Ron gets a win, has to face the reporters afterwards after this sad event. But a, a really great performance in what could have been a, a historic performance for the team. And it led to a couple articles from Reds fans, including, I think, their head of digital marketing writing about going to this game and having been at this game where Ron Robinson almost made history and how much that meant to them as Reds fans. So a couple of, of good articles. And Ron is clearly well-remembered by Reds fans, not just for this performance, but for his time with the Reds. And there's also, we'll put in the show notes, a good list of no hitters and perfect games that were lost in the ninth inning. Earlier in 2021, we saw Carlos Rodon hit a batter in the ninth inning to lose a perfect game, but he was still able to maintain his no hitter. Unfortunately, Ron was not. I thought losing a perfect game with two outs in the ninth inning would be pretty rare, and it is, but it has happened 13 times since 1900, which may be more common than I thought. Yeah, once every eight years, it's it's pretty common. Yeah, particularly with two outs. A, a lot more have been lost with one or no outs in the ninth inning as well. An interesting note on here is that later in 1988, the Reds did get their first ever perfect game. 
with Tom Browning, nemesis of Tim Tuffle, getting a perfect game against the Dodgers. I love that that is a phrase that's going to be tied to Tom Browning for the rest of this series. Yes. Enemy of Tim Tuffle. Enemy of Tuffle. As we mentioned, Ron has a, quite a bit of injury trouble this year, misses a lot of time in the summer, returns in September, and not a good season stats-wise for Ron. His first season with an ERA over four, he has a 3-7 record in 1988. He had a few hard luck, no decisions. 11 of his 16 starts, he gave up two or fewer runs, but he only got three wins on, on the season. 1989, another elbow surgery in April. He doesn't end up playing his first game until July. Ends up starting 15 games, 5-3 and three record, 335 ERA, so pretty good. Pretty good. And heading into 1990, which, as we know, a big year for the Reds, they would go on to win the World Series. Ron had a difficult start to the season, and on June 4th, he gave up eight runs in a loss, which dropped him to 2-2 two and two with an ERA near 5. His season would get better, Unfortunately, not in Cincinnati. He was traded to Milwaukee with Bob Sebra for Glenn Braggs and Billy Bates. Those two guys would play key roles for the Reds in their unexpected run to the World Series title. Ron had a really good season in Milwaukee. It's just unfortunate that he spent the first six seasons of his career with a team and leaves right as they peak and win the World Series. Yeah, it's unfortunate timing for him. He has a decent season with the Brewers, 22 starts, 12-5 and with a 2.91 ERA, but the Brewers are 14 games under 500. So while he was their top player in wins and in war ahead of Paul Molitor and Robin Yount, it's not good enough for the team. And so, yes, in 1990, the Reds win the World Series and Ron is on the outside. 1991, the injuries and the effects of all these surgeries really kind of compound for him, and he only plays in one game in 1991. And in 1992, he's limited to only eight starts. He went 1-4 with a 5.86 ERA, and at that point he had had five elbow surgeries, and his career was done, and he was retired. I don't know what effect the late 1990 stretch had on Ron's elbow, but for a guy with that many surgeries, the Brewers really just rode Ron at the end of that season. He had three straight complete games at the end of 1990, and then he pitched in nine more games after that. Maybe they should have shut him down a little bit early, let him get some more rest, and limited the wear and tear on that elbow. But overall, Ron had a a good career. He pitched in 232 games. He had 19 saves, a 48-39 and record, and overall a 3.63 ERA. So having closed the book on Ron's career, what is he doing now? Ron never forgot where he came from. He is coaching in Visalia, California. He lives there with his wife, Becky, who was his high school sweetheart. They had three kids. In pictures of him in this Visalia Times Delta story, he looks kind of the same. He's a (laughs) big guy, 6'4". Kind of looks like an older Daniel Stern now. His hair and beard are white rather than bright red. But he's coaching kids as young as six years old playing baseball. So just like his dad, Ron has gone into coaching. Everything from young kids up to college players. He said he stresses mechanics and repetition. He coaches young pitchers. And also he throws batting practice. Imagine facing Ron Robinson as a six-year-old. 
he said that he could still throw 80 miles per hour, but he lowers that. He tries instead to throw the pitches that kids will see in a game. So he's not throwing 80 miles an hour to six-year-olds. He said that he prefers to coach individual players rather than a team. He says, I don't have to show an allegiance to a particular team, just to the kids and baseball. Reds fans, for their part, have allegiances to Ron as well. I found a shirt that just says, Ron freaking Robinson, which is a pretty great shirt. I couldn't find anything else about like a Ron Robinson fan club or why this shirt exists. But I did reach out on Twitter to a guy named Paul, who I know is a Reds fan, and just said, any thoughts about Ron Robinson? And he just said, he was a great relief pitcher for a team that put together a pretty good bullpen. So Reds fans remember him fondly. How could you not love a guy this red playing for the Reds? <laughs> and Reds fans have a soft spot for anybody, I think, named Robinson. True Creature, pretty memorable nickname, if not a little bit unfortunate and mean. But in 1986, he had a truly great season. Very impressive in the bullpen. Maybe too good for the bullpen, but not healthy enough to stay in the rotation for a full season. Ron is still invited back to Reds games as a you know returning star of yesteryear. And the fans love to remind him of that day in 1988 when he was so close to perfection. And maybe the dramatic fashion of that near miss is more memorable than if he had actually finished a perfect game or at least as memorable yeah it it is also maybe a sign that to be great you don't have to be perfect and and that that was a great game and a memorable game while not a perfect game that's a a great way to describe it thank you david it's a great story about a true creature if you have a request from the show please send it to us you can find us on facebook just search for 1988 Tops Podcast. And if you're hot and sweaty, we would love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.